Luke 13, 22 to 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, please all have a seat. Thanks. Well, good morning. It is once again a privilege to be with you here today. How many people here like running, like jogging? All right, we've got a couple, got a couple. Well, Bill, that's good to hear. All right. Not allowed anymore, but you'll like it. All right, that's good. Well, one of my favorite activities is actually trail running, and a few reasons I like trail running. One is it's good physical exercise. You know, it's good for the body, good for getting some good positive endorphins flowing in the brain. Um, another reason I like it is because it burns calories. And being that I love cheeseburgers and Dr. Pepper, it get, allows me to enjoy those guilt-free, right? Um, another reason I like trail running is it's kind of just a, a, it doesn't have a lot of requirements. You know, a pair of sneakers and I'm good to go. And since my job takes me uh, out of town an awful lot, I'm able to bring my activity with me. So three weeks ago, I was down in Laguna Hills, California, uh, just south of Los Angeles, and I was going for a trail run. And I kind of had a cursory look at a map and say, okay, yeah, I kind of want to do this route here. And, and then I kind of tucked it away. So given a wrong turn or two, I ended up kind of going for longer than I'd intended. So I thought, you know, I got to find myself a path to get me back to where I want to get to. So I identify this, this trail, this pathway, and it was about this wide, kind of bushes were about this high up on either side. And it was kind of on a downhill grade. So I start down this, this path and I just round the corner and then I come to a screeching halt as my toes kind of glide about this far from a rattlesnake. 
This rattlesnake's kind of stretched out across the trail. He's kind of booking it. His head's kind of just making the, the bushes on the right, and his rattler's just kind of clearing the ones on the left. After my heart kind of, you know, and I, I backpedal fast. I, I know, you know, yeah, I could have got back by that rattlesnake, but in my mind, I'm thinking, what's, what's around the next corner, right? You know, like, I got to choose a different path. Well, choosing the right path for a recreational run is one thing. But choosing the right pathway in life, we know, carries far greater consequences, both for here and more what we'll be talking about in a little bit, our consequences and impacts our eternity. On our lead up to Easter, we're looking at passages from the book of Luke, as we just read. Luke is, is one of the Gospels in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke was a physician in the first century. He, uh, he wrote the book of Luke and then also the book of Acts. This passage that was uh, read for us, it, it's amazing. I, we're going to look at three kind of ideas. First of all, how it instructs us. Second, how it warms us. And finally, how it shows us the heart of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he died for the sinfulness of mankind. He became the propitiation or the payment for our sins. And this sparked a brand new movement, a brand new religion called Christianity. Christianity, I believe, is the most inclusive, exclusive religion on earth. You see, Christ didn't die for just the Jews, even though that that is what Judaism thought was going to happen. He didn't die for just the rich people, although that's what they would have thought they were entitled to. He didn't die just die for man, although given the non-status of women in that day, that would have seemed appropriate as well. No, Jesus came to earth, and he sacrificed himself for all mankind, for Jew and non-Jew, for the rich and the poor, for the, the healthy and the sick, the rulers, the outcasts. He died for men, and he died for women. He died for you, and he died for me. Now, we know many people reject Jesus outright, and they choose a different course, different path, different belief structure in life. This passage doesn't really talk to them. It talks about two, two other groups, though, and that's what we're going to look at. One group who identify the truth, and they seek it out. And then there's another group who believe they are on the right path, but they're mistaken. And it's for these people that I find this sermon tragic and, and sad, actually. So first off, our first point, let's look at what is the instruction of Jesus. Chapter, uh, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You know, Jesus has been on this journey in the general direction of Jerusalem. He's nearing the end of his three-year ministry on earth. He's, he's probably only a, a few months from his own death. And he's quite a spectacle. You know, controversial speaking, uh, healing sick people, raising people from the dead. You know, he's the best ticket in town. He's got a, quite a following. People have witnessed amazing wonders, and yet his teaching is difficult. And devout followers are a small percentage of the crowd. Jesus has taught how people who wish to follow him must lose themselves, leave everything behind if they're going to follow him. After all, Jesus is the narrow door. In John 14, 6, we know Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So someone, likely one of his devout followers, asks the obvious question. You know, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, Jesus doesn't respond with a yes or a no or a number or a percentage, but rather he responds by telling the listeners what they must do 
to find the kingdom of God? It's a simple question. Why doesn't he just answer with a yes or a no? You know, the question you should ask, he's saying, is don't ask how many, but rather, am I one of them? Don't be concerned with how many, Jesus is saying. Be concerned with your own salvation. And I know this sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? But this is exactly what Jesus says. He, he replies to the question with the journey that each individual, each one of us must make. You know, in that day, the same as today, there was a wide variety of teaching, wide uh, range of beliefs surrounding God and the afterlife. And with this vast number of ideas, many people are believing the wrong things. So we read here in verse 22, first off we read, you know, that we ought to strive to enter through the narrow door. Notice it doesn't simply say enter the door. It says strive to enter. Two things are happening here. First off, it assumes that we've actually identified the door, the true path. But secondly, if we've achieved that, then we must strive to enter. Now, don't, don't mishear what striving here means. You know, this doesn't, isn't pointing to our achieving our salvation you know, through working for it. But even if you discover the right message, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Let's do a quick review of the gospel as we know it. You know, what are we taught? Salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? There's the, the, in a nutshell. You know, we often recite the kind of the Romans' road to salvation. We have our Romans uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then we go into 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We get into Romans 5.8 and said, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we have to respond. Romans 10.9, if we confess with our heart that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And sometimes we encourage people to, you know, pray a brief prayer. And she says, eh, you're a Christian. Eternal life secured, all done. Now just go on with life as usual. You know, over the past hundred years, this quick as a wink, simple prayer conversion process has become very popular in evangelical churches. You know, often within the context of a large gathering, we'll have some emotional music, a kind of a persuasive speaker. You ask to bow your head. With your head bowed, you know, pray this prayer after me. It is a sinner's prayer. And if you pray that prayer, just raise your hand right where you are. Oh, amen, you know. With your hand raised, stand where you are. Stand up. If, you've got, if you're standing up, please just come to the front. And people come to the front, and there's emotional music and high fives and yahoos, you know, and stuff like that. They kind of do a brief overview of the sinner's prayer and bada-bing, you're in. This is exactly how I, at age 23, became a Christian at a large function in Portland, Oregon. And this is how thousands of people made their decision, you know, at Billy Graham Crusades or other places around the world. There is nothing wrong with this process. Jesus can save us in a moment. But can you see how easy it is for a decision to be made entirely on emotion? You know, that was easy. If it's always that easy, I wonder what Jesus is getting at by saying, strive to enter the narrow door. Strive means struggle. Strive means fight for it. Who or what are we striving against? You know, some might say Satan, and he's certainly part of it, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But, you know, Luke records that Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow gate. In this case, the person has found the right door, and yet they have to strive. They have to fight to enter. Let's just pause for a, a, just a moment and differentiate a couple types of striving on our journeys in our life. 
You know, we have the striving prior to conversion that Luke's talking about here, but, but we do know that we have the striving that happens after our conversion, after we're Christians, don't we? You know, the, the striving that we experience in our daily Christian living. You see, we all know that to be a Christian is not to be perfect. Can I get an amen from my family? All right. We're called to work out our faith every day, put on the full armor of God every day. And this daily striving doesn't mean we end up perfect here on earth. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was a pretty extraordinary man. He had certainly found the correct path. He had entered through the narrow door, and yet he was often frustrated how his old sinful self kept rearing its head. Romans 7, verse 15 and 18. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to to carry it out. You know, this striving is the reality that I will continue on a daily basis to do battle, to continue to ask the Holy Spirit to identify sin in my own life, to honor God with my submissive, repentant heart. So that's kind of our daily post-salvation striving, I'll call it. But the striving that Luke refers to here is the inner fight that must happen prior to conversion, prior to entering through that door. Who are we fighting? Generally, I think the primary person we fight is, our, is ourselves. You know, we fight against our fallen soul, our, our desires for stuff. We fight against our desire to control our own lives. We fight against the need to truly repent, to give up ourselves. This is a battle of our will. Quite honestly, some people aren't prepared to strive. You know, you know how we said salvation comes by grace alone? We got that part, you know, grace. You know, God doesn't accept me because of my efforts. God accepts me because of what Jesus has done. Grace alone, through faith alone. Well, this faith part, it doesn't allow for a Jesus plus. I can't go to say to God, Lord, take me, but my hands are already full of stuff. They're just going to add Jesus in there a little bit too. It doesn't work that way. Few will enter because the correct path, the narrow door, has been made clear to some, but after they consider what's really required, they opt out. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, he kneels at him. Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life in, or enter the narrow door? And Jesus lists the commandments. What does he say? He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the fellow says, I've always obeyed these commandments. Jesus, however, saw his heart. And every one of our hearts is different. And he saw that this guy, he loved his possessions too much. So Jesus says, sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. And this fellow goes away sad because he's wealthy and he's unwilling to part with his stuff. He chooses not to strive to enter the narrow gate because he loves something more than Jesus. In this man's case, it was his possessions. For, for other people, it may be something else that they can't let go of. Perhaps a position, power, security. Perhaps fear of what people might think of you. Perhaps it's your refusal to submit to anything that will require you to change. The true gospel calls for self-denial. And this may look different for each of us because each of us tend to cling to different things. But in the end, we must deny ourselves to follow Jesus. This next part of the passage I think is very sad. Verse 26. After the door is shut, meaning our life is over, then you will begin to say, you know, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, 
all you workers of evil. You know, the people in this illustration said, hey, we're part of your group. We listened to your sermons. We hung out with you. And Jesus replies, I don't know where you come from. I don't know you. That'd be brutal. This world is filled with a lot of ideas about God. There are many sincere people. Unfortunately, when it comes to the gospel, they're sincerely wrong. And it's tragic. There was a poll conducted by the Pew Research Center in 2018 here in Canada. And this poll shows that 55% of Canadians would still identify themselves as Christian. Surprised me, actually. Of these people, only 23% believe that the Bible is relevant to modern life. So less than a quarter of the people calling themselves Christian believe that the Bible has any relevance to their life. Now, we know that God looks at the heart and only he knows truly who is his. But is it likely a fair guess that if a person could care less about and doesn't believe that there's any relevance in this Bible, that perhaps that person may not be a true believer? They might think they are. They might call themselves Christians. Um, in 1993, I was flying a de Havilland Beaver float plane up in the Yukon. And on a particular day, I took off and I had three geologists on board. They're going to go up and pick some rocks up north or something. And so we take off. The weather's kind of low, so I had to fly kind of low. And when you fly in low, you kind of lose perspective. You can't really pick up on the landmarks that you would normally uh, need. And Now, I did have a map with me. This was before GPS. I had a map with me, but quite honestly, my ego, my pride wouldn't let me pull out the map and, and, and look at it, you know, because I'm flying with some guys that kind of, you know, they're pretty professional. I'm supposed to be a professional. I should know my way, that kind of thing. And, and flying a little airplane sometimes, pulling out a map is, is kind of cumbersome. So I leave the map parked where it was. Guess what happens? That's right. I get lost. Now, the thing is, I know that I'm lost, but my three passengers don't know that I'm lost. So trending along, you know, you're kind of doing this, looking around, trying to be, indis you know, kind of indiscreet, kind of hoping to pick up a landmark. Well, fortunately, about 45 minutes later, I did pick up a river that I recognize, a cross river. So I pull up my map then because I knew where to start, got the guys to where they're going. That map was a necessity. I think what we have to recognize is that this Bible is our map, a map that God's given us from the beginning to end to show us how do we get from here into his kingdom. But this Bible, the same as that map, does us no good sitting in my compartment, sitting in my trunk of my car, sitting on a shelf somewhere if we're not going to actually consult it. I'm thankful that here at Central Church that we have pastors who believe in actually preaching through the Bible and not just cherry-picking verses to support their favorite topics. You know, how often do we hear testimonies from people, you know, I was drunk and Jesus saved me. I was lonely, Jesus comforted me. I was broke, Jesus gave me a job. I was sick, Jesus cured me. All these things are wonderful, for sure. We know that anything good in this life is a gift from above, is a gift from God. But can you see, if we aren't careful... The gospel message, it turns from a, a path of salvation to eternal life and becomes a path of self-improvement and, and good behavior here on earth. The gospel changes from Jesus rescuing me from eternal condemnation to Jesus more being kind of my genie in a bottle or, or my, my vending machine. You know, I'm going I'm to put in a little prayer of dissatisfaction here and I'll pop some more comfortable living or a better self-esteem. You know, the message the Bible is recognizing is that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And we will all spend eternity in one or the other. Our natural 
Sinful, selfish state separates us from a holy, just God. His love sent his son, Jesus, to redeem us, to justify us so that our eternity is secure in him. And all these other things that we give thanks for, they're just icing on the cake. It's unfortunate that many Christian churches teach a gospel of behavior modification, the icing, rather than true heart transformation. You know, you don't really have to submit. You don't really have to repent and seek first God's kingdom and his holiness. Rather, just be you know, thankful to God for the improvement he's made in your life and, and be a nice person. You know, overwhelmingly, the majority of professing Christians suggest that if I'm a nice person, if I'm a good person, if I seek to treat people well, that I'm going to go to heaven. You know, you can pursue whatever you wish, everything in moderation, right? This isn't the gospel. A.W. Pink was a preacher about 100 years ago, and he says, those preachers who tell sinners that they may be saved without forsaking their idols, without repenting, without surrendering to the lordship of Christ, are as erroneous and dangerous as others who insist that salvation is by works and that heaven must be earned by our own efforts. There is a battle being waged for your soul and for mine. Anything good that God creates, Satan wishes to distort, to lead us astray, and he even uses misdirected churches to lead us astray. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body. Oh, really? I love that. Hey? Do not fear those who kill the body. Well, that's pretty serious. But he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. You know, there was a great series of letters, uh, fictional letters, that were written by uh, C.S. Lewis. They're called the Screwtape Letters. And if you haven't read them, you're missing out. Uh, for those of us uh, that prefer not to read, there's also a great audio version. Well, basically, these letters are, talk about screw tape. It's kind of a look at, from, a, from, a, from the Satan's perspective. So, so screw tape is a senior demon, and he has his young protege called Wormwood, and screw tape is teaching Wormwood how to deceive his human being that he's responsible for. And so letter number nine says, talk to him. This is Wormwood, or uh, screw tape talking to Wormwood. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. This passage in Luke has a couple other parallel passages, and there's, there's an account in Matthew, Matthew 7, verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people are actually throwing the name of Jesus around. For sure they call themselves followers of Christ. And yet Jesus says, nope. Were they any worse than any others? Probably not. Were they any more screwed up than you and I? No. The problem was they were not found to be righteous. They were not found to be justified. They were not true Christians. So I'll call that the kind of the, the, the teaching of Jesus. Now let's look at some warnings that Jesus gives us in this account. First warning, I think, is this entering the narrow door. It's a time-limited offer. Verse 25, it says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Now, of course, we're not talking about an actual door here, right? That's a metaphor for our lives. And we must realize that our access to strive to enter through this narrow door 
to experience the salvation that's offered is a limited, has a limited time. And it may be limited in a few ways. One way, it may be limited by the end of our life through death. Luke 12, verse 16. And he told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store up my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, marry, and, or drink and be merry. But God said, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Another way that this may be a limited offer is by the second coming of Jesus. Luke 14, 20. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. A third way this may be a limited time offer is by God's justice. Just saying, that's enough. If you want to continue rejecting me so badly, go for it. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up. Another translation would say, so God abandoned them. So God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And he goes off to list a sampling of sinful actions that, that captivated people. So that is a warning. Our, our time to find this narrow door, to enter it, strive to enter, it's limited. A second warning is there is an alternate destination. You know, where the other path leads. This warning is, is one we often avoid talking about. It even feels weird actually to talk about it. It, it, it. It's about a place called hell. Verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. This language, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's used several times in Scripture. Obviously, to be rejected by God results in a very uncomfortable place, a real place. You know, society has, has so many caricatures of, of hell and Satan that we really don't take it very seriously at all anymore, do we? I like what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, think lightly of hell and you'll think lightly of the cross. Think, lightly, think little of the sufferings of lost souls and you, you will soon think little of the Savior who delivers them. But this real place, eternal separation from God, eternal dissatisfaction, our, our unsatisfied selfishness, our eternal torment, it's as real as heaven. God doesn't send us there. We are destined by our own nature to go there already. God, through Jesus, saves us from there. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Before we move on to our final point, I just want to pause briefly at verse 30. Verse 30 says, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Kind of sounds like a riddle to me, but anyway. But this statement is spoken numerous times by Jesus. It's often in different contexts, sometimes referring to a person's uh, uh, embracing Jesus' teaching, sometimes speaking to those who sacrifice more or less to follow Christ, sometimes about riches, poverty, rejection, fairness. You know, there's the story of the talents, we remember, the story of the laborers, the story of the rich young ruler, the reality of the Jewish nations versus Gentiles. You know, the primary thing that it speaks to, the primary point that Jesus is trying to get across is God's economy is very different from ours. 
and there will likely be many surprises in heaven. We should be less concerned about where we rank and what rewards await us. Less concerned with comparing my Christian life with your Christian life. And just be blown away, humbled every day with the beautiful reward of eternal life. So we see the instruction of Jesus. We understand that there's warnings of Jesus given. And finally, let's look at the heart of Jesus. I'm going to read from verse 31 to the end. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. You know, basically, I got work to do. I'm not going to disband for you or fear of Herod. And he says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I think he's being sarcastic there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, like we don't know if this warning from these Pharisees was legitimate or not, you know, or what their intention was. Generally, the, the Pharisees that were depicted in, in the Gospels and into the early church, um, they weren't, they're pretty antagonistic toward Jesus. But we know that some have actually come to follow him. And, and Jesus doesn't you know, have much to say to the Pharisees, but he certainly makes it clear that he is on a mission, a calling that ends in Jerusalem. You know, yes, Jesus was a teacher, for sure. Yes, Jesus was a healer, for sure. But his ultimate mission was to be Jesus, our Redeemer. To die for the sins of humanity, the sins of you and me, and he doesn't have any intention to alter his mission or progress toward Jerusalem through intimidation by Herod or anyone else. Verse 34 O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I love the imagery here. A hen gathering your chicks. You know, the safety, the warmth, the nurturing, the raising. Jesus had often desired that the Jewish people and leadership would embrace his message and his declaration as Messiah. He would have loved to gather them and see them embrace his message of love and salvation, his message that holds a promise to his kingdom. But what does it say? You were not willing. Gathering us into his love is the desire of Jesus for all of us today. Jesus desires to gather us as a hen gathers her chicks. He wants to protect us, save us, raise us to maturity, and ultimately to his kingdom. But we, as with the people of Jerusalem, maintain the choice to reject Jesus. His redemption, his justification, his righteousness is of no value to us unless we are willing. It's no value to us if we reject the true gospel. We all have to choose. Are we going to choose the narrow path of Jesus that leads to heaven, or are we going to follow the broad path that leads to hell? Which path do you choose? Are you sitting here today totally thinking that the Zerny guy, me, you know, that I'm a narrow-minded idiot spouting nonsense? 
You know, after all, how can I suggest that Jesus presents his narrow door, you know, and that he's the only way to heaven? You know, that's pretty arrogant. What about other beliefs? You know, this is certainly a popular position held in society. And, but you know, when, if we take a cursory look at other religions in the world, and, and even, you know, atheism for that matter, there's conflicting truth claims. And this direct disagreement between them, it's evident. I will grant you that we might all have it wrong. But given our differences and, and contradictions, we by golly sure can't be, all be right. I'll tell you that. So if we cannot be right, if we cannot all be right, then it is, is it not of value to investigate sound, logical reasons to believe? You know, I find it quite popular in our society to, to kind of be lazy around thought and discussion of God. I get it. <laughs> no different. You know, let's talk about the weather, sports, our jobs, whatever it is. But ignoring the gospel, ignoring eternity doesn't make it go away. I challenge you, dig into the questions you have. If you're anything like me, you got lots. You know, the existence of God, you know, creation versus evolution. Um, if God's so good, why is there so much evil in the world, right? Is Jesus real? Did he really come? Did he really die? Did he really rise from the dead? I pray that eventually you'll come to a place that, that stepping out in faith is just that. It's just, it's just a small step. Not an illogical leap kind of, of faith. You know, if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower, I'd love to visit with you. And I know Eldon and Pastor Jeremy the same. Just kind of listen to your story. If you're seeking answers today, right now, to some of these questions, uh, please see me afterward. I'd love to give you a, a copy of a book. I think it's, it's great, might help, uh, by Timothy Keller called Reasons for God. Great resource. Come up and grab it. Are you here today wondering perhaps if you could be a person who thinks they are a Christian, but you may end up on the outside of that door? Don't live with that uncertainty. This question was asked of uh, John MacArthur. He's a pastor down in California. It was asked of him in an interview I heard recently, and he answered something like this. The question of, you know, you know am, I, am I really saved? And what he says is, if you've acknowledged that Jesus is Lord, if you've repented of your sins, if you've surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, then you are a transformed life and is evidenced by what you desire. And he goes on to ask five questions. Do you desire to know God? Do you desire that God knows and loves you? Do you desire to love him? Do you desire to honor him? Do you desire to obey his word? If the answer to these questions is yes, then you are a true Christian. And Jesus says, if you are one of his, he will never let you go. You know, we sometimes fall into the trap of a kind of, you know, evaluating the authenticity of our salvation by our failures. Well, this isn't right, because we all know, as we've talked about, we'll all continue to sin. Rather, we can assess the genuineness of our salvation by what we desire. If we could lose our salvation, for sure we would. <laughs> Fortunately, it doesn't depend on us. We didn't do anything to earn our salvation, and as we humbly surrender every day, our faith is sustained by Jesus. So as we head to Easter, 
Let's remember that we are so flawed that Jesus came and died for us. But we are so loved that Jesus happily came and died for us. I'd like to just close this talk with this passage from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so just blown away by your gift to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We just pray that uh, as it spoke to the people 2,000 years ago, that we will continue to, to open it and, 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 and seek to find answers today. Lord, for each one of us, I just pray that we, we, we desire you. We seek to desire you. We seek to, de- to desire what our next step in our faith might look like. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as we discover that, that we can be more effective in deepening our own faith, but certainly in, in, in showing your love to people around us and in society. We thank you, Lord, and pray for your blessing on each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.